Hey everyone, first off, we at The Feminist Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today, Simon Theobald, together with my guest, Dr. Jill Shepard, lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations, and a presenter on Policy Forum Pod. Hey, Simon. Martin Pierce from the Crawford School of Public Policy and presenter of Policy Forum Pod and editor of PolicyForum.net. Hello, Simon. I'm very excited to be here in the glamorous surroundings of the uh, CPAS studio. Far more glamorous than policy (laughs) forum parts. And of course, your traditional familiar stranger, Dr. Julia Brown. Hi. And of course, myself. I'm here today. Simon Theobald here. Glad to be with you all. Jill and Martin are joining us from the Democracy Sausage podcast. Thanks for being here, guys, today. We're really excited to have you on. So, Jill, what are you thinking about this week? Well, I study Australian politics and I've been doing a lot of media, answering a lot of questions about particularly how many people have voted before the election. So in 2016, about a third of all Australian voters voted before election day. Now in Australian politics and the study of Australian politics, we're really interested in this idea of election day as a ritual. And we've just recorded our other podcast, Democracy Sausage, and that's the the joke, right? You go and have a sausage on election day. Everyone gets together. At my daughter's primary school, you know, we fundraise with the election day sausage sizzle. And I've been thinking about this a lot that what happens when we don't all vote on election day? Maybe half of all voters will vote before the election at a pre-poll booth. It's really unexciting, right? You sort of turn up and it's just some government building. But when we stop voting on election day at the local primary school, there's no kind of fate, there's no children running around, there's no dogs. Is that going to change something about the ritual nature of Australian elections? And what are we going to lose from that? I think that's a really good point, Jill. And I'm wondering about whether or not having pre-polling and voting online is more likely to include people that are less likely to engage otherwise should they have to turn up on the day as well. So I'm just kind of thinking of the flip side immediately, being a bit of a contrarian. But I think it's important to think about how this kind of change might actually perhaps include more people in the Uh ritual, even if what's going on on the day itself is less of a community, like a physical community. Yeah, absolutely. I think you bang on. And so I make the argument that pre-polling is good because it's convenient. It lowers the costs of voting for people, particularly older people. And so the people who vote early aren't necessarily angry. It's not like they they just cannot wait to turf the government out. It's that... Because that's how I feel. Right? That's how a lot of people feel. And that's... So it's a really easy narrative to buy into. But most people, it's because they have physical disability. They don't want to be there on election day where it's hard. You have to line up. So it is about convenience, especially in a system like ours where we have to vote. It's compulsory. But then we all often get that question, right? What happens when we lose the community spirit. So it is a trade-off between inclusion and I guess that coming together. What do you think, Martin? Actually, I've kind of got a a question that has popped up. I was listening to another podcast this morning and they were talking about compulsory voting 
And they were talking about whether compulsory voting could ever be introduced in the UK. And they said, absolutely not. At this stage, it would come across as the state intervening in people's lives. But the flip side of that is they've got really low engagement in voting. So I think it's quite interesting, the Australian system. I think it would be a shame to lose all the great things that happen on polling day as a result of having compulsory voting and everyone having to turn up and cast their vote. Well, the flip side of compulsory voting, though, is it's been almost like a social compact that the government has made it easier to vote. Do you guys have a sort of anthropological view? As an anthropologist, it's a fascinating social event to be at. So I always make sure that regardless of like whoever, even in the ACT local elections, I always hand out how to vote cards just so I'm there for the longest possible period of time. <laughs> and you get to watch these most amazing social interactions. I think anthropologically speaking, it's a, a microcosm of, of society at large, redacted into this single kind of moment. It's an expression, I think, of, in some ways, the least complicated Australian sense of identity that we have. Because there's so much about Australian identity that is really complicated, right? That there's, there's issues about settlements, about racial identity, etc. But at democracy, it's compulsory. Everyone has to be there. And I, I know we've said that half of voters don't turn up on the day. But when they do come out, the other half, it really feels like there's a kind of a community spirit, I would say. So if that is an expression of national identity, and I think it is, right, I think there's absolutely an, an argument to be made for that. What happens when those people who have voted early and they are often marginalised either by age or by physical disability or some other reason, what happens when they can't partake in that? I mean, that seems problematic, right? Because from a political science perspective, it's really, it's almost cut and dry. Well, it's better just to let people vote. And if we can let people vote for the three weeks leading up to the election, that's good. Anything that lowers the cost of voting. But I think we're probably overlooking something that's lost in that. Shared sense of identity, I think. And of course, you miss out on the democracy sausage. Do you or do they now hand out sausages at the pre-poll station? I think <laughs> the big ones they do, the but it's not the same. It's not the surely, same. right? And there is something about that shared moment. Yeah, absolutely. There is almost a, an Australian shared sense of disappointment, of kind of <laughs> compulsion that, that you know everyone has to be here. This is our, our duty in some ways that I think is lost if you're not there on election day, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe maybe we're not giving enough credit to the, these pre-polling booths. Maybe there is a greater sense of community happening there than Possibly. we... Possibly. I have to pre-poll this time, so I'm going to find out. But I'm gonna, I'm, I am going to really miss it. I think as a kid as well, I remember it was really my first foray into politics at all, being at these election parties with my parents. I had no clue what was really going on, but the significance of what it meant for Australia to elect a new prime minister was really only played out at these kind of gatherings. Yeah, absolutely. And because we have weekend voting, we take our kids to the polling booth. Mm. So my daughter has these sort of long running memories now of being dragged along while we vote. And her dad and I used to hand out how to vote cards and, and do all of those things. Now I'm in and out, you know. Uh, actually, no, we're usually cooking sausages, uh, which is quite <laughs> sweet, right? And so I am really going to miss it. Guys, we could talk about this forever. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> we have to move on, I'm afraid. Martin, what are you thinking about this week? Okay, so I have been thinking this week about the values of groups that I belong to. And these are kind of informal values, and these are informal groups as well. I'm not talking about political parties where they have kind of clear policies or something like that. I'm talking about those sort of unwritten values for groups. And some groups I have very little dedication to, but some groups I have a really strong sense of identity with. So I am from London. I'm a football fan. I'm a Crystal Palace fan for, for my sins. And being a Crystal Palace fan doesn't just mean that you like the team. It means that you share certain 
values, and again, these are all unwritten, but if you probably put 100 Crystal Palace fans in a room and said, well, what are the values of being a Crystal Palace fan? You'd probably get a broad consensus of what those values are. And those things are something like, well, you know, they're a South London team. They have got some affluent areas around them, but they've got some areas suffering from really, you know, the after effects of austerity. So some really poor areas around them. So it's quite a kind of working class club. Uh, It's a very ethnically diverse area and proudly so. So those are all the kind of values that come with being a Crystal Palace fan. But Crystal Palace, like so many other parts of the broader community, the Crystal Palace fan base recently has seen an attempt to establish a group of fans within there who held views which a lot of fans found quite objectionable. They were quite right-wing, they were anti-immigration, they were fairly racist in their views. And it was really interesting watching the incredibly strong reaction from the Crystal Palace fan base against these people it wasn't just that they disagreed with the views of these people it was that they fundamentally thought that they went against the values so i guess my question for you is you know from an anthropological point of view what happens when the values of a group that you belong to start to change or even worse when the values of a group change that you belong to change in a way that presents a conflict with values of other groups is there something about the way that we take on group membership as part of our own identity as we talk about social identity a lot in politics and the way that say voters might think of themselves well i am labor i am a labor voter and that's part of my group identity so if it turns out that a majority of crystal palace fans were racist like if they dominate and you guys, you you know, woke Crystal Palace fans get, you know, outnumbered, that would change your own sense of identity, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that would be really confronting. I've got to say, as a fan of Crystal Palace, I would feel possibly quite disenfranchised. Would, would you that. leave? Would you no longer be a Crystal Palace fan? Well, you, you can't change your football team. But you take down the Crystal Palace, like, pictures that you've got on your wall. I'd have my Crystal Palace tattoo covered over. <laughs> <laughs> That's... So I follow Essendon in AFL and when they had the drug scandal, you know, sort of over the last 10 years, well, one, I kind of stopped following them, but it did hurt. It did kind of eat away at me a little bit. It did feel like part of my identity. What happened to your relationship with the club after that? I checked out. You wouldn't swap clubs, right? Because it's... Would you not swap clubs? I I say this is someone who is not a a rusted on fan of any particular team, so... Oh, no, it's like worse than death. It's worse than death, is it? Worse than murder, yeah. It is, It's interesting because I think there's a kind of... The anthropological question here is the degree of social solidarity that one feels with these institutions. And for me, I'm a big English football fan, soccer in Australia and when it comes to the World Cup I always love to watch Australia disgrace itself on the international field (laughs) but once Australia's out I feel no sense of solidarity I'm like we're gone now let's pick and choose a team from the various ones who are more professionally qualified perhaps Germany is a favorite of mine. So do you choose while the competition's happening what team you're going to go for after Australia's out? Yeah usually I, I have no sense of permanent connection to any one team, but I don't particularly, I don't identify with, with football as being part of my identity. identity. Yeah. It's just something Where, that you watch It's just something enjoy. that I watch and enjoy. Whereas something like with different kinds of social solidarity. So something for me like politics, however, feels 
if we're going to use the term very tribal for me. And I definitely do identify myself as a, and perhaps not so much partisan in the sense of I'm a voter of a particular party, but I very much identify with a particular set of policies and politics. It's interesting how much you kind of, you imbibe that sense of an affinity with others and how when something goes wrong, as far as we're concerned, it does make that relationship difficult. I think to some degree what we've hit on is that it's always difficult to sever that relationship completely. It's quite hard to really say, I'm absolutely no longer associating with them. I mean, is there any situation you could be in where you were no longer a Crystal Palace fan? There is no situation <laughs> I could be in where I am no longer a Crystal Palace fan. But I can certainly see a situation. If that group had been successful in terms of infiltrating the broader fan base and all of a sudden the broader fan base became very right-wing, anti-immigration, quite right-wing, I would really struggle to feel the same sense of loyalty and love and association I have with the club after that. We could continue talking about this forever once again. <laughs> Welcome to the Crystal Palace pod. <laughs> Julia, what are you thinking about this week? So I've been wondering about how Australia's dismal mental health care system situation is perhaps an indicator of how the public engage with government issues. And this came about because I was talking to Dr. Sebastian Rosenberg, who's over at the Centre for Mental Health Research and the Brain and Mind Centre at University of Sydney, about accountability in mental health care systems. And he was explaining to me how Australia has gone from being a world leader of mental health care in the 1980s to being pretty much defective. And this has been recognised in 2006. There was a national action plan but problems remain, he says, in part because all the plans and policies that are put in place are not actually reviewed and the focus is always, including from the public, on who is paying for it rather than what's mm. working, right? And so, of course, there is some differences between states. So in Victoria, there's a much better outcomes and this is partly because there are blended community services and NGOs more involved, but it's also to do with more of a public engagement and a collaborative effort between society and government. And so my question is, why generally is like at, when we're coming up to a federal election and addressing a lot of these kinds of systemic issues, why is funding seen as the answer to these systemic issues rather than people caring about whether current approaches are even effective. Like, why is there this attitude of let's just put more money on it and things will improve? So I think about the counterfactual, right? What about the issues where money, you know, and accountability, like financial ca accountability is seen as huge? Like, even in the current election campaign, you know, Labor's talking about its climate change policies. The Liberal government wants to know, well, what's the money? Well, you know, how much are you paying? Where's the kind of accountability? And then I was thinking about... Other issues like mental health, and I'm thinking about Indigenous health, Indigenous health outcomes, and oh, drought funding. Um, when we're in a drought, and we spend a lot of money on drought assistance that, and I've worked in agriculture, so I've sort of got a beam up on it about this, that isn't necessarily very well accounted for. Is it about taboos? Is it about, are some issues just seen as, I guess, outside of the bounds of accountability. And that if we started to ask, well, is this actually good value for money? That might be seen as us saying, we don't want money spent on mental health. Yeah, I think that is a big part of it. I think that it is partly because these issues are put into the too hard basket. 
because it is only some issues, right? Like mental health seems, mental health and Indigenous health seem really similar. Yeah, in that it's always the government's fault. Like they should be. And that more money will fix it somehow. Yeah. But evidently not because you keep throwing money at it and it's not working. But let's not do anything different. Let's keep making the same mistakes over and over. Martin, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, it just makes me think that politicians love a big announcement, right? Big numbers says they are doing something about a particular problem. But there are, it strikes me, there are very few mechanisms for reporting back on the success of that month. Um, And, you know, next year rolls around, another election rolls around, there's another announcement comes out. So there's something fundamentally wrong in terms of the accountability that goes with financial announcements, unless... something goes terribly, terribly wrong. You look at... It's interesting because when I think about government accountability, I often feel we are, as a society, increasingly socialised to expect the unexpectable. For me, I expect that a a large institution like a government is inherently going to waste some money. Mm. That's just the outcome of a a system that, that is that big, ultimately. You know, I mean, the government is huge. But I work on the assumption that we live in a society and that, as a result, giving away certain amounts of money is just the kind of the necessary evil for being part of this society. So for me, it's not really a problem. I agree. We should, in some ways, keep throwing money at mental health. We should keep throwing money at Indigenous health. The question is, how do we then get the kind of results that we're looking for without it being a a kind of... Well, this is the thing. We need to review how that money is spent and we need everyone at a social system-wide level to be actively engaged with this question of accountability. But do we need to review how the money's being spent so much as how, what, what the outcomes are? Well, yeah, sorry, outcomes tied in with the outcomes as part of the evidence of what's working. I just feel like when, when people get down to the kind of nitty-gritty of, you know, oh, you spent that money, you, I don't know, you're a remote ranger you and you spent X money on beer cans, that means that you can't do that next year, that kind of thing. It, it becomes a kind of really punitive form of governance as opposed to one that's more kind of generous and allows for particularly something like indigenous health or mental health issues that are not going I don't at least I in my personal opinion aren't going to be fixed by having a really punitive model you know you can't you can't fix mental health by holding people down and saying don't spend this much next year it's interesting because I didn't think about the punitive aspects but I guess you're right in that if funding is potentially taken away from schemes that didn't work previously even though some aspects of those schemes may have been all right then that's not good either. There's, there's a social compact kind of thing here too though, right? Like we, we do live in a society, but as an individual, I'm paying tax that the government is spending on my behalf. And so I do want some accountability. So there's a tension as well. Like I trust the government. I have to, that otherwise nothing will ever get done. But I think you've hit on something, Simon, that it's a bigger question about how much we trust government, how much we are willing to delegate some responsibility or, you know, some capability to spend money to the government and then how much we trust them and how much we want to nitpick over small things. In keeping with that thing, we might move on to our next topic, which is me. This week, what I've been thinking about in keeping with our Policy Forum pod theme is whether anthropologists have any role to play in diplomacy. Normally, diplomacy is the realm of I don't know, in my mind, hard-hitting political scientists and, you know, well-trained, well-groomed people who know how to use the fork and so on and how not (laughs) to embarrass themselves in front of other people's foreign ministers. 
But I sometimes imagine myself post-PhD, what will I do? And I often think, well, is DFAT a place for me, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade? Is that somewhere I'd like to go? And is there even a place for someone who has been trained in a kind of critical social science to go into these institutions? Or do they have to hold the line, toe the kind of party line so much that there is no space really to to allow, I don't know, and I don't want to say free thought, that's not quite the right word, but sort of individual analysis. What do you guys think? I would like to think there is, but I'm not sure that the, well, the Australian government system (laughs) is ready for it. Because I think that there is a role for being able to have diplomatic conversations that are a little more flexible and acknowledge the shortcomings of one's home government. But I don't think that's something that's really accepted yet. I'm really interested in what implications this kind of idea, so, you know, an anthropologist diplomat would have for our conceptions of nationhood. So diplomats, when they go overseas, they represent Australia. And Australia is seen as this homogenous group that has one prevailing view and the diplomat will communicate that view. What happens when we introduce nuance, right? And and I think it's a great idea. Well, it's an interesting thought experiment, right? But what would happen when you start to introduce nuance and criticism? And what would that look like? What does the anthro diplomat talk about when he turns up at the dinner party? I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I would love to be the fly on the wall when they do hire that first anthro diplomat. (laughs) But I mean, it is an interesting question, isn't it? The degree to which can you as a representative of your nation in a foreign situation say, well, I recognise that Australia is a multicultural nation with 20, what, 23 million people now and that they represent a variety of different voices and not all of those voices are represented in current government policy. I think there's probably not space for that. What about you, Man? I mean, your question was, does anthropology have a role to play in diplomacy? I think the answer to that is yes, absolutely. I mean, there are career diplomats out there But if you think about diplomats who get posted to embassies, they um, not only have to tow Australia's party line, but they also have to work in local cultures. They have to be sensitive to the differences in local cultures. And someone who comes from an anthropology background, absolutely I can see that would be a, a huge benefit in that situation. So, yeah, definitely. If you're fancying a career in DFAT, I would strongly encourage you to do so. If an anthropologist's role is to nuance things then definitely I would like to hope that they have a role in diplomacy. Well, on that note, we might wrap it up. I want to thank Jill. Thanks, guys. I want to thank Martin. Thank you so much for having me. And Julia. Thank you very much, everyone. And me, your host, Simon Theobald. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fung. You can subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast, or you can find us on iTunes, on all the other familiar places, including Spotify. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet to us at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.